Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I talk about an individual bird species, I do all the research, tell you everything you need to know about them, so you can just sit back with a beer, some coffee, and, you know, enjoy learning about a new bird. Today, I'll be talking about the Atlantic Puffin. Thanks to Henson, who suggested I do an episode on puffins, after I posted some pictures of Icelandic puffins that my buddy Hubert sent me. And I'll be talking with Hubert later on in this show. Henson also sent me a nice message, and I'll just go ahead and read it. He said, I'm living out in central Oregon, and I've been listening to your podcast whenever I go on nature walks. I'm 15 episodes in. I appreciate all your efforts, and I can impress my girlfriend with random bird facts I've learned. Thanks for listening, Henson, and if your girlfriend is impressed with bird facts, then she's definitely a keeper. <laughs> I hope you like this episode on puffins. And a shout out to Jay Pogo. We haven't heard from Jay Pogo in a bit, but Jay Pogo sent me um, a bird sound um, that he heard in a residential neighborhood um, up in New York and was uh, looking for some help in identifying it. So let's listen. So I think that that's a Carolina wren, although it's not kind of like the classic Germany, Germany call of it. Um, and Jessica with Coastal VA Wild um, also thought it was a Carolina wren too. But I don't know, listeners, what do you guys think? Let me know. So I'll just go ahead and launch right into it. There's three species of puffin. The Atlantic puffin we'll be talking about today. And then there's also the tufted and horned puffin out in the Pacific Northwest. I'll just be covering the Atlantic puffin in this episode, though. It's a super interesting bird, both in appearance and its life history. This episode is going to be full of fun puffin facts. Just to get the ball rolling with some fun facts, while the Atlantic puffin is a fairly like medium-sized bird, slightly smaller than a crow, it has a long lifespan of 30-plus years. The oldest known Atlantic puffin was 41 years old. So these guys are pretty long-lived. I mean... Most of the like songbirds and even like some of the bigger birds I've talked about only live like around 10 years. 41, that's, that's a pretty old bird. Puffins are in the auk family of birds, and while they look similar to penguins, they are not closely related. Penguins actually evolved millions of years before the auk family of bird did, but I'll save the full evolutionary explanation of the puffins until later in the episode. I usually put the evolutionary history near the end of my episodes because, I mean, only the real bird nerds are interested in that, right? <laughs> when you see pictures or videos of puffins or see them in real life, um, you'll see that they're standing upright, similar to the way penguins do, but they definitely aren't as awkward while walking. You know, penguins, like, waddle around. Um, puffins are able to walk with quick steps on their bright orange legs and webbed feet. They have black and white bodies that contrast very nicely with their most outstanding feature, their broad, gaudily colored beak. The beak has shades of orange, red, yellow, and black, and it's quite impressive. The beak is most brilliant during the breeding season when they will add extra stripes and layers to it. You'll also notice that in the breeding season, the eyes of the puffin appear triangular. 
This is because, especially during the breeding season, it has raised areas of skin surrounding its eye that can be gray, blue, or yellow, and almost give it a sad clown appearance. Males are slightly larger than the females, but other than that, they are pretty identical. Their wings are all black. This helps differentiate them from the razorbill, another auk that has white on its underwings. And like I said, while these birds look a lot like penguins, they are not because these birds can fly in the air as well as underwater. They do struggle a little bit with flying. Um, they have these short little wings, you know, so that they're um, able to swim better with them. Um, so they have to flap really fast to be able to fly up to 400 times a minute. And all this flapping can make a lot of noise. So I've never actually seen uh, puffins in real life. When I was in Iceland, I tried to go see some puffins. Um, I went to this cliff top and I had heard that there were, you know, puffins kind of nesting around there. And I got to the top of the cliff and it was just so incredibly foggy. I mean, you could barely see your hand in front of your face. It was almost like spooky foggy. And I got to the edge of this cliff, uh, which was also kind of terrifying in the thick fog. But I could hear these puffins flying around down below me, but uh, I couldn't see them, unfortunately. And when they're flying, they go pretty fast. They've been clocked going 50 miles an hour. The Atlantic puffin's scientific name is Fratercola arctica, and this genus Fratercola also contains the Atlantic puffin's west coast siblings, the crested and horned puffins. It's a reference to its appearance. Fratercola means little brother in Latin, and this is a reference to the friars of the 1800s who wore black and white habits, and so when people saw these puffins, you know, that are black and white, they thought about the monks that would wear them too. But I don't know. I think it's more of a reference to them nesting together in burrows. They're just like all hanging out on a cliff, having a party, inviting some puffin chicks over. Like they're in what? Pi Upsilon 5? Puff? Come over to the puff house. We got some kegs. We fly around a bit. Dip our beaks in some beer. I don't know. Puffin frat house. Man, where are you, Tim? I need to record with you, because I feel like my jokes suck when I'm recording alone. Anyway, back to real puffin facts. It's a bird that likes the cold, and it inhabits the water of the North Atlantic Ocean. But they don't like it too cold. They only enter on the fringes of the Arctic Circle. Most of the population is found in Europe, with a full 60% of all Atlantic puffins breeding in Iceland. They can also be found breeding all the way from the Merman coast of Russia and Norway to Iceland, Greenland, the Faroe and Orkney Islands, along the Labrador coast of Nova Scotia of Canada, and even on some islands of Maine. In the winter, these birds leave the islands or coastal areas they raise their young on and take to the high seas. They don't like ice and can sometimes move pretty far south in their migrations. The young especially seem to travel farther during the winter than the older adults, and also females have been found to travel farther than males in some studies. One tracked puffin traveled over 8,000 miles during the winter months, and it's not unheard of for puffins to turn up on the coast of southern France, in the Mediterranean, and down towards Virginia and North Carolina. I couldn't believe this when I read it, that there's freaking puffins in the Chesapeake Bay sometimes. Like, it's going to be my mission to spot a migratory puffin this winter. And since these birds can swim, it's no surprise that they are fish eaters. They're almost exclusively fish eaters, um, especially during the breeding season when they're feeding their nestlings. But during the winter, they're more generalists. They'll also eat other sea critters like squid, bristleworms, or shrimp. They specialize in catching fairly small schooling fish, such as sand eels, herring, whiting, and sprat. You know, sardines and anchovies are on the menu too. I don't know if I'd eat pizza with a puffin. They'd probably like it full of anchovies. They have a really unique swimming strategy to catch fish underwater. They use their wings to propel them underwater while their feet act like rudders. They hold their wings half-folded and move them in an oscillatory manner, 
meaning that they kind of make like circles with their wings to paddle themselves through the water. And they can achieve speeds of 1.5 meters per second or 3.3 miles per hour underwater as they chase down the fish. To give some reference, an Olympic swimmer achieves about 5 to 6 miles per hour when they're going all out freestyle. So this is pretty remarkable underwater that they can go this fast to chase down fish. They'll go down to a depth of about 200 feet to feed. Just a side note, unfortunately, the reason why we know this is how deep that they'll go to catch fish is due to bycatch, meaning fishermen accidentally catching and killing puffins in their nets. It's been noticed that nets placed below 200 feet never catch puffins, so it's been concluded that they don't dive down beyond that depth. Puffins don't seem to be able to hold their breath very long. They only spend about 30 to 40 seconds underwater at a time, so they'll kind of dive under, propel real fast down to 200 feet, catch some fish, and just shoot right back up to the surface. And while the summer months, they're spending their time, you know, catching fish to feed to their young, the winter is all about trying to pack on some fat. Puffin fat stores will increase by about 20 to 30% during a winter. And this does provide them some insulation from the cold, but really they're trying to prepare for the grueling task of breeding in the summer. The puffin kids eat first and the adults later, so they'll lose a lot of that body fat during the summer. So let's talk about those grueling summer months when puffins are trying to breed. As I mentioned earlier with the puffin frat house, um, puffins breed in colonies, usually on cliff sides with grassy slopes where they can excavate burrows or on rocky shores that have like, you know, crevices between the rocks. They prefer slope surfaces over flat ones. One likely reason for this is puffins have these little stubby wings and they need kind of a bit of a drop in the elevation in order to get airborne. They'll nest at the same colony site year after year and arrive to breeding sites around March to April in big groups suggesting that they migrate back to their colonies together. The timing of when exactly puffins breed is related to weather conditions. Puffins need to time the rearing of their chicks with when fish are abundant in the waters. Now you've probably all heard of the El Nino weather phenomenon in the Pacific. Uh, I automatically think of Chris Farley. El Nino! But there's a similar weather phenomenon that exists in the North Atlantic called the North Atlantic Oscillation, or NAO. Eh, that doesn't really roll off the tongue well. <laughs> El North American Oscillation! Nope, doesn't work. <laughs> Basically, the NAO results because over Iceland, the atmosphere stays pretty permanently low pressure, while in the Azores of Portugal, the pressure is high. In years where the difference between these two pressure areas are large, the summers are cool and the winter is mild. This is termed a positive NAO and seems to coincide with earlier fish spawning and earlier breeding for puffins. And I couldn't exactly find like which is better for the puffins, a positive NAO or a negative NAO, but to kind of sum it up, if there's a large pressure difference between Iceland and the Azores, it means that the weather's going to be milder and it means that the puffins are going to breed earlier to time up with those fish spawning earlier. Puffins are monogamous and likely reestablish pair bonds every breeding season. Unlike many birds I've talked about in past episodes, there's no sleeping around on the side. Studies have shown no evidence of extra pair paternity of Atlantic puffins. Many mates will use the same nesting site every year, like the same little burrow. So not only are they a couple, but they have their own little home too. Courtship and mating occur at sea before the couple arrives at the colony site. The male will growl, flick his head, and flutter his wings to solicit the female. Initially, the female will be low in the water with her head retracted, but if she likes what she's seeing, she'll extend her neck out. The pair will circle each other before the male mounts, and while he pushes her body underwater during the five to six seconds of mating, she keeps her head held high and dry above the water. Billing is an important behavior to maintain the pair bond. It's like a little beak kiss, and pairs will touch the sides of their bill together and nibble at each other's bills to, you know, just tell each other, hey, I love you. At the colony, nesting sites are pretty hot commodities during the breeding season. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to excavate a burrow and find suitable crevices in a rocky cliff face. 
Puffins mark their burrows by doing a behavior called pelican walk around it. They'll stand up straight, touch their beak to their chest, and take slow, high steps. It looks pretty hilarious when you watch it, and I don't know, maybe try it yourself. Tuck your chin into your chest and take some big, high steps. Like, you look ridiculous, but no one's going to come near your burrow when you're doing that. Both male and female puffins will sometimes have to fight in defense of their nesting sites. They display their aggression by gaping their bill, raising their tongue, and ruffling their feathers. If it comes to blows, rivals will grapple with their bills while also using their wings to knock each other off balance and their legs to propel their opponent backwards. Sometimes they become so intertangled they tumble down slopes or even cliff faces together. So they do kind of a form of puffin wrestling where they lock their bills and then try to just like push the other one over and maybe even push them off a cliff. If a puffin has to build a new burrow, it'll take about two to three weeks for it to fully excavate it. And even if they're reclaiming an old burrow, you know, coming back home after spending a winter at sea, there's often some repairs that need to be done. Puffins will use their bills like a pickaxe and their feet like shovels to kick dirt out of the burrow entrance. Burrows are usually about three to six feet long, but I saw some accounts of burrows much longer. There was one in Russia that was 45 feet long. And this wasn't just like one puffin couple doing this. Puffins will actually have interlocking burrow chambers. Um, sometimes they'll even share them with like other burrow nesting creatures. So I wasn't kidding when I said like puffins kind of have a frat house, you know, like they excavate out tunnels in these hillsides and, you know, maybe they'll all nest together. Who knows? Maybe there's a bunny staying in there too. Whatever. Everyone's welcome. It's a party. Each burrow will kind of end in a nest chamber that's lined with grass or feathers to make it a little more comfy and to just give it a little bit of a more homey feel. They also will make side tunnels that serve as a latrine. So, I mean, these are kind of cool little burrows. I'd live in one, you know? You got a little nest chamber to sleep in. You got your bathroom. Maybe you got some puffin' frat bros living with you, too. Yeah, this sounds like a cool place. Around late April or early May, the female is ready to lay her single egg. Yes, that is right. Puffins only lay one egg a year. So they have a lot invested in just this one egg. And that's why they don't really do any kind of sleeping around on the side. Like a lot of songbirds, you know, they might lay multiple clutches of eggs or, you know, they'll lay like five to six to ten eggs. So like they can kind of, you know, sleep around, take their chances with, uh, you know, some other males. But no, puffins, this couple is invested in that one little baby. Both parents will incubate the egg. And in a first for the bird species I've studied so far for this podcast, both the male and female will have brood patches. These are areas of bare skin on their bodies that will help transfer heat to the egg. Um, I don't know, probably some other birds that I've talked about, uh, the males have brood patches too, but I don't know. Everything else I've only read that the females have brood patches. Um, the brood patches just, you know, help them transfer heat and keep the egg nice and warm. So... Since they split the duties of um, egg roosting uh, pretty equally, both the male and female are adapted for this. After about 40 days, the egg will hatch. Puffin chicks, termed pufflings, hatch with their eyes open, and once they dry off, they resemble a dark fluffy ball with a stubby pale-tipped bill. I mean, come on, that's like the cutest description and the cutest name, puffling. The pale tip on their bill is actually an egg tooth. This is a structure that helps chicks break out of their shell and falls off as the bird matures. The puffling requires incubation by its parents until it's about nine days old, at which time it can thermoregulate on its own. Both parents will feed the chick. At first, the adult will either hand fish directly to the puffling or drop fish at its feet. However, as the chick gets older and more mobile, parents will just drop off fish at the burrow entrance. Like, here's your food. It kind of like Grubhub, puffin Grubhub. <laughs> at day 38 to 44, the pufflings have now graduated to being juvenile puffins, and they're ready to leave the nest burrow. While they're only 60 to 80% the size of a full-grown adult, they head straight out to the sea to feed. 
Interestingly, they almost always leave the burrow for the first time at night. Um, this is possibly to avoid predators. And I'm going to talk about this more, um, especially in breeding colonies near like cities or towns. Um, this leaving at night um, can result in, you know, some mix up for the, for the puffins. Um, similar to, you know, like with baby sea turtles, they hatch and they're trying to find their way to the sea and they can get kind of mixed up by light. So stay tuned. I'll talk about that later. Once the puffin leaves the burrow like this and heads out to sea, they're now fully independent of their parents. Once late August or early September roll around, it's time for the puffins to leave the breeding grounds and for the juvenile puffins to make their first migratory trip out to the high seas. As I mentioned earlier, these are pretty long-lived birds, you know, living around 30 years. Oh, some titmouse right by the window. I don't know if that uh, sound came through, but sounded a little pissed off. Yeah, so these are pretty long-lived birds, so it also takes them a while to reach full maturity. It takes about five years on average for Atlantic puffins to reach um, their full, like, breeding status. While the young'uns can't breed, um, in, you know, in their first couple years, they will still go to colony breeding sites. Since these younger puffins don't need a burrow because, you know, they're not laying any eggs, raising any young, they just kind of hang out in groups with the other bachelors. These groups are termed clubs, so young puffins go clubbing. While the older ones are in frats, the younger ones go to clubs. <laughs> and these young puffins show very little interest in the colony, but their interest grows with each year. Like what I was reading, like, you know, in their first or second year, while they're like near the colony, they just kind of hang out in their clubs with other, you know, one or two year old puffins talking about, I don't know, the fish or what the seagull's up to, some gossip, doing some TikTok dances. I don't know. What, what do young puffins do these days? I don't even know. But around year four, their interests start to change. Young puffins will start trying to defend a burrow, but I mean, they're not very good at it. They're young. They almost always get evicted by older individuals. Sometimes puffins are able to breed as early as three, but this is really rare. Um, a majority don't start breeding until after that five-year mark. Well, five years is kind of like, okay, they can start defending a burrow, raising young. A lot of them aren't even able to do it at five. Like it's not until six, seven, eight that they actually are able to defend a burrow and to raise some young. These early years are some of the hardest of a puffin's life. One study in Scotland found that only about 16% of fledgling puffins survive to be greater than four years old. So, I mean, those four years, they can't even breed. Like, they're still learning how to, I don't know, catch fish and survive the winter. Like, <laughs> I guess, you know, I was kind of making fun of them when they're hanging out in those clubs. They're actually just probably talking about how the hell do we survive another year? <laughs> And while, like, adult breeding puffins will come back to the same burrows and colonies year after year, the non-breeding younger puffins might disperse to nearby colonies other than those that they were born in. And so this can kind of help other colonies grow um, or establish new sites for colonies because once a puffin starts breeding in a colony, it's dedicated to that colony for the rest of its life. And if that colony somehow gets wiped out, you know, those older adults are, are kind of screwed. But, you know, maybe the young ones are able to disperse and, and you know, kind of keep that puffin line going. One way to tell an older puffin is by looking at its bill. As puffins age, their bill becomes larger and acquires more grooves. It becomes much more ornate and, you know, august as, as you get older. So now at this part in the show, I want to play a conversation I had with my friend Hubert, who provided the cover art for this episode and some great photos of puffins when he visited a puffin colony in Iceland. So I'm talking with my friend Hubert, who recently went and saw a uh, puffin colony. Hi, Hubert. Hello, everybody. <laughs> um, so Hubert and I met in Iceland, actually. Uh, we were roommates for a little bit. Um, Hubert, do you mind talking about um, how we met in Iceland and the town that uh, we met in? In a town? Okay. <laughs> Big village, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, we lived together with John. And how long? How I think long it was you... two months, two and a half months. 
Yes, something like this. Yeah, in one in one house with our friend Ari. Yes, he's been on the show. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I am still here, so you know, I'm still living <laughs> with Ari. So, so it's it, it's really good. Yeah, two two and a half months he was here, and uh, yeah, we lived together and it was really really good time. We got kicked out of a bar one time for um, yes yes we were playing cool. and singing piano too loud we were well we, uh, your heart will will go on the Titanic song <laughs> yeah oh you remember about this it's yeah good. yes Hubert is a very good piano player and I am a very okay. bad singer ah <laughs> uh, okay thanks John <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Hubert, do you mind telling us about your um, recent trip to uh, a puffin colony? Where did you go? How did you get there? It was a plan with my friend. Uh, he's from Poland also. And um, in this year, we have big problem with the weather in south of Iceland. Because this summer, in this, in, in this year, it's not good. Always rain cloud rain cloud so we decide to go somewhere where is sun and good uh, weather uh, on this time on this summer it's in east mm. so we we decide to go there and to to find some really nice place uh, to visit to 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 you know to to see something new for us mm-hmm. and uh, and we found this this amazing amazing place with a puffins family it it was something something really amazing do you know how to pronounce the name because i i can't <laughs> about puffins no the the name of the place you went ah, uh, this place it's very close really really small village the name of this village is Borgarfjordur Istri. Mm. This really, really small village. I'm not sure, but I think something like 100 people maybe live there. Mm-hmm. And in the end of road, there is this uh, mountain. What's the name is? Borgarfjordur Hopi. <laughs> It's very hard name, but uh, yeah, it's it's the family, uh, Puffin's family uh, island rock cool. like this. How many puffins do you think there were? Like hundreds, thousands? More, I think. Really? More. Yeah, it's you know I sent you a lot of picture and mm-hmm. uh, I heard something also. But it's really good to be there in the uh, real time, mm-hmm. lifetime, because you you can see everything. Okay, on the mountain on this rock was a lot of puffins. I think I don't know two, three hundred or more. Mm-hmm. But how many puffins was somewhere outside? Yeah, you never know. So amazing, amazing, really, really amazing. And were they um, flying around also, or were they just around their their little homes, their little holes? Yes, I think this is something uh, they they built something like cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for my opinion, they they live inside. Yes, a lot, uh, a lot of puffins you can see when start to go in and out. So probably they 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 you know you know they start to fly somewhere to to find some something to to to, to food something to eat yeah. and they come back to to this cave house. <laughs> yeah, they have their um. That's where their baby is. They only have one oh, baby okay. and it, it, it's in the cave. Okay, so it's really <laughs> really nice. Yeah, yeah, it's comfy. <laughs> that's that's the, why it was a lot of caves there. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, were they making a lot of noise? Uh, sounds. Yeah. 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 And and it's really really, mm, and really different. I don't know how to explain that. This is like 
Mm. I don't know how to explain that. It, <laughs> it's a very, really different and amazing sound. It's unbelievable. Uh, uh, when somebody start to play to me, and I don't know what is this, so definitely I can say this is not birth or puffins. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 a really amazing. Great, and I'm gonna play some of those sounds um, on the show um, also. But uh, did you see any other birds like um, seagulls um, trying to like bother the puffins, or was it just puffins? No, just puffins. Okay. I, I, only just puffins there. Maybe somewhere, you know, somewhere in other place, but yeah. they're just only puffins. That's why, that's why I say those really huge family puffins. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, sorry to take a step back. How did y'all um, get to that place? Because uh, I remember from Iceland, it um, can be hard to get around. Um, the buses are very expensive. Um, I had to hitchhike when I was there. Did you guys have a car or, or what yeah, did I you have, do? Yeah. yeah, I have. And that's why it's very easy for me. So yeah. Just, I can, you know, I, I can decide to go somewhere and just I start my engine and go straight. <laughs> so this is really, really easy for me right now. But that's true what you said, of course. Mm-hmm. Bus is very expensive. So uh, just for people who can come here and and decide to to travel a little bit. So I recommend hitchhike. <laughs> yeah, you meet some cool people. I remember when I was hitchhiking there, um, I got a ride with a whaler. Um, I didn't even know whalers still existed, but yeah, he, he hunted whales. <laughs> you know, a lot a lot of time I stop here and I I, I take with me somebody to 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 travel. Yeah. So, really popular here and it's it's safe it's really really safe yeah very safe um did you talk with anybody about the puffins in that town or did anybody tell you like that's the spot to go to see the puffins um no because for us it was something like just happened you know oh actually actually we i talked with my friend and look here is a nice place because we, first of all, we decided to go to East because we like, we really like to uh, hiking. Mm-hmm. And uh, we try to explore new, new, new places about this. And we decided to go there because I, I found somewhere on my phone this information about this, this, this mountain and this puffins. And, and that's why we, we, we was there. So nobody, nobody talked with me about this. Nobody told me about this. So just was like, you know, just happened. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the best kind of uh, trips when you just find something very cool. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Well, awesome, Hubert. Thank you for telling us uh, about your puffin adventure um, and and what you saw. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure for me. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, and everyone check out Dirty Bird um, social media. I posted uh, a lot of Hubert's um, great pictures of puffins. Ah, super. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You take care, Hubert. Thank you. That was great. Thanks so much, Hubert. Thanks for your pictures. So about the vocalizations of these birds. The most commonly heard call of puffins is given during the breeding season by both sexes and is described as a moaning call. They also give several grunts and growls. The chicks give typical peep calls to solicit food from their parents. 
But if they are really hungry, they will give a shrill screech call that motivates their parents to get them some food fast. I'm just thinking about my three-year-old nephews right now. They're not so different from pufflings. If you don't give them food, then they definitely scream. So I'm about to move to a slightly depressing side of the show where I talk about puffin predation and their conservation risks, their falling population numbers and risk of extinction. Before we do that, let's lighten the mood with some quick puffin fun facts. First of all, puffin bodies will adapt depending on the food that they are eating. Puffins in Iceland that feed mainly on capelin, a pretty nutrient-poor fish, had larger small intestines than puffins feeding on more energy-rich fish. This larger small intestine allows them to absorb more nutrients. Puffins that have to fly farther from their breeding colonies to find fish also have larger hearts and flight muscles than those that can feed relatively close. Puffins have a really fast metabolism. They burn 222 kilojoules per day. While compared to humans, this seems minuscule. We burn like six to 7,000 kilojoules per day. It's actually 60% greater than what you'd expect of an animal of its size. Once a year, puffins will do a complete molt where they will replace both their primary and secondary feathers. This period of molting lasts for about a month and leaves the puffin flightless and very vulnerable to predators or bad weather. Puffins seem to have a little bit of choice on when they will perform this molt, based on how bad their feathers are beat up and how much food is available. They might do it right after the breeding season in late September or October, or they might just do it right before the breeding season in February or March. Remember, this molt is a big risk, so they want to time it perfectly. It appears that the majority of puffins that are found dead, washed up on shore, were molting at the time of their death. On the brighter side, puffin bills glow in the dark. Remember earlier I mentioned, you know, puffin beaks become more ornamental during the breeding season? Um, it's because they'll put on these yellow bands on their beaks called sere and lamina. Um, and these bands are also photoluminescent. This is a, it's a very weak photoluminescent. You probably wouldn't, you know, notice it really just under normal light conditions. But if you look at it under a black light, it's pretty striking. Photoluminescence has also been observed in the bill of another auk species, the crested auklet. The reason for the glowing bill isn't exactly clear, but there's kind of three hypotheses. It could be important for breeding and attracting a mate. Or maybe the glowing bill helps orient the little puffling chicks um, inside their dark burrow. Or maybe the glowing bill acts as a lure to fish underwater. Like I said earlier, these birds are very social, frat house species. Um, they are colony nesters, and they are also known to form large rafts while out at sea. There's a lot of social norms puffins have to respect. There's a lot of social norms puffins have to respect in order to fit in with their colony. One of these is the landing posture, displayed by a puffin that has just landed from flight near a group of puffins and wants to join them. The puffin will place one foot in front of the other in a sort of bow, while holding its wings high over its back for about four seconds. After the proper respect has been shown, the puffin is allowed to join the group. So, they don't like being alone, you know? They want to hang out with the other puffins. And as I mentioned earlier, even within their colony sites like they're not necessarily the only ones nesting there. Sometimes even other species are within the same burrow system as them. Manx shearwaters, razorbills, gulls, guillemots, and even rabbits are found nesting in puffin colonies. Puffins do a really cool flight pattern called wheeling flight at their nesting colonies where sometimes for hours on end they will fly in these figure eight patterns. It's especially juvenile puffins that do this. It's not exactly known why they do it. Um, their puffins will perform wheeling flights as a defense mechanism in the presence of predators, um, but why they do it when there's no predators around um, isn't really known. Another defense mechanism puffins have against predators is their hearing. Measurements of puffins' hearing abilities show that they are more sensitive to low-frequency sounds than many other birds. This may be so that they can 
hear sounds that are conducted through the earth into their nesting burrows so they can hear like a hungry predator walking above. Puffin calls also tend to be in the lower frequency range than other birds, so that may also be an explanation of why they kind of hear better um, at low frequencies. Speaking of predators, let's move on from the puffin fun facts and talk about some puffin mortality. There's a lot of predators that like to eat adult puffins. Large-bodied gulls, skuas, falcons, hawks, eagles, owls, and even buzzards and ravens are known to prey on puffins. If they have access to breeding colonies, mammals such as fox, minks, otters, and cats will prey on puffins. Foxes and rats are known to seek out chicks or eggs inside the burrows. I also found one really weird predator of puffins. In 1983, an Atlantic puffin was found in the stomach of an anglerfish. So, presumably, I don't know, the puffin was like feeding at night and anglerfishes will sometimes kind of come up more, you know, towards the surface at nighttime from the, you know, depths below that they usually feed. I mean, this poor fucking puffin, I can't imagine getting eaten by an anglerfish. That's like the worst way to go. Gulls and jackdaws will sometimes engage in kleptoparasitism um, and steal hard-earned fish from puffins. As far as parasites, puffins will get the usual array of feather mites seen in many birds. They also pick up various ticks, fleas, and thrips while they're on land. There's a species of protozoa called Amiria fratricole that specializes in infecting Atlantic puffin kidneys. Ugh. A big cause of puffin mortality, though, is just bad luck. Puffins at their colonies are bound to their burrows and can't just abandon their nests, their eggs, their little pufflings. So if the fish populations crash in the vicinity um, or a bad storm rolls through, it can really decimate a colony. Our pollution, too, has a toll on puffins. One study found that 10% of North Sea Atlantic puffins had ingested elastic, presumably from rotting clothing. Plastic beads and nylon threads have also been found in puffins. And while that, like, burrow system, you know, makes some pretty cozy homes, they're always constantly kind of chiseling away, expanding their burrows, connecting their burrows together, and that can cause the burrow system to collapse, and that can kill puffins too, or ruin a breeding site. The current population estimate for puffins is around 5.8 million, but it's thought to be declining. Only about 400,000 of that population is breeding in North America. While the North American populations seem to be doing pretty well from what I could tell, the European colonies that make up the vast majority of the species are definitely hurting. They're expected to climb by 50 to 79 percent by 2065. This species is currently listed as vulnerable. The 1800s and early 1900s saw especially significant blows to puffin populations from human hunting for puffin eggs and trapping the adults. Um, they would shoot the adults also and sometimes exterminate entire colonies. Historically, they were once found in Helgoland, Germany, and along the coast of Sweden. Um, there's also many individual islands where colonies once existed but then were exterminated. Um, either from human hunting or the introduction of rats. There's a long tradition of hunting puffins throughout the North Atlantic. One culture where they especially feature in is the Nordic culture. There's references to hunting puffins or collecting their eggs that feature way back in the thousand-plus-year-old Norse sagas. On cold, inhospitable islands, such as the Faroe Islands or Iceland, puffin adults and eggs were a vital source of calories, and collecting them could mean the difference between surviving a winter or not. Collecting these eggs required braving cliffs with ropes and ladders. It's a very dangerous task, and there's a lot of Icelandic legends that feature people dying from trying to collect these eggs and usually blaming trolls that live in the cliffs for it. There's stories that, you know, someone will be down collecting eggs, um, on a rope and then all of a sudden a gray hand will reach out from the rock face and start cutting their rope. 
when Iceland started to be converted to Christianity, there's stories of bishops going and blessing the cliffs to expel the trolls from it. There's some pretty humorous stories where a bishop will be blessing the cliff faces and then hear a troll call out like, No, please, even the trolls need a place to live. And the bishops, having pity on them, will then leave a section of the cliffs unblessed and, you know, warn people, don't don't go there, you know, to try to collect bird eggs because uh, there's a troll still there. And actually there's a section of cliffs in Iceland called the Heidnaberg, or the Heathen Cliffs, because they supposedly are this unblessed section where trolls live. To catch adult puffins, Icelanders use an extremely long-handled net called a haffer. Um, they lean out over cliff faces and will net the birds as they're flying through the air. Puffins are still hunted and eaten in Iceland today. Um, you'll find them available on menus in restaurants in Reykjavik. It's a little contentious because, you know, the populations are going down. Um, some people argue the practice should be stopped altogether, while others believe it can be done sustainably. Um, I'm not going to wade into those waters, but all I'll say is ice centers definitely don't just kill puffins. And I apologize in advance for my terrible Icelandic pronunciation. But on Jaime Island in the Vestmenajar archipelago, um, they have a long tradition of rescuing young puffins that become easily confused by the town's streetlights on their first night out of their burrow. Children especially are involved in collecting and releasing the puffins, and this was captured in a famous children's book called Night of the Pufflings by Bruce McMillan. He actually coined the term puffling. The kids who participate in the event call themselves the Puffling Patrol. Move over, Paw Patrol. Puffling Patrol is here. <laughs> Um, in Newfoundland, Canada, on Whitless Bay, um, which contains the two largest colonies of Atlantic puffins in North America, the community there has formed a similar group called the Puffin Patrol that helps them save disoriented fledglings. Uh, I think Puffling Patrol is a better name than Puffin Patrol, but whatever, them and Paul Patrol can fight it out. In Newfoundland, Canada, on Whitless Bay, which contains the two largest colonies of Atlantic puffins in North America, the community there has formed a similar group called the Puffin Patrol that helps save disoriented fledglings. So yeah, I mean, I think of like, you know, sea turtles, they try to follow the moon out to sea when they hatch and sometimes get confused by, you know, car lights or, or towns and people help save them. It's, it's kind of the same with pufflings, you know, they emerge from their burrow for the first time to see the world at night and might get confused and fly into town and be like, what the hell, where's the sea? And it's, it's nice that they've uh, formed communities that, you know, go and collect the pufflings and, and help release them. All right, folks, we reached the evolution part of the episode. Only true bird nerds proceed past here. You have been warned. <laughs> the Atlantic puffin is part of the order Charadiformis, a group of mostly pelagic and shore birds that first formed during the Cretaceous period. The auk family formed about 35 million years ago when they split from their sister taxon, the Stercoridae, which contains the skuas and jaegers, fierce gull-like birds that prey on puffin adults and are just basically bullies in general. So that's kind of crazy. I mean, I talked earlier that, you know, skuas and jaegers will um, prey on adult pufflins. So it's kind of nuts that they're kind of closely related. And yet, you know, this one group preys on one that, you know, it's not too distant from. There's some debate about whether the auk family formed the Pacific or the Atlantic. The Pacific currently contains the most diversity of auk species, but as we've seen before in this podcast, just because an area contains a diversity of species doesn't mean its origin is from there. In fact, the two oldest auk fossils that have been found dating back from the early Miocene period are from the Atlantic Basin. However, since the most basal members of the auk family, the now-extinct Mancalinae subfamily, lived on the Pacific coast of California and Mexico, a Pacific origin for the auks is currently supported. And that wing-propelled diving um, I talked about earlier um, is observed in all the auk species, so it's likely a very ancient behavior that originated when the first auk ancestors evolved. It's possible this behavior first evolved from birds using it to escape from predators and then later became a method to catch food because um, there's other birds that have been observed using wing-propelled swimming to escape from predators. 
So possibly like, you know, this was a, f a flying bird and then like it would jump in the water and kind of use this as a ex escape mechanism. And then after doing it a couple times, it's like, hey, you know, I can kind of swim and catch some fish using this strategy. Around 11 to 16 million years ago, during a period called the Middle Miocene Climatic Optimum, Earth's climate warmed dramatically, and this increased upwellings of cold water in the oceans. As the ocean surface became full of cold, nutrient-rich water, the Auk family experienced a boom and many new species formed. For example, the genus Cerorhinca, which today contains only one member, the rhinoceros auklet, a very close relative of puffins, was very productive during this period, and fossils of three now-extinct Cerorhinca species have been found. Around 5 million years ago, during the Pliocene era, the climate cooled off some, but it was still warmer than it is today. Fossils found in a phosphate mine in Aurora, North Carolina, on the shores of the Pamlico Sound, revealed not just Atlantic puffin ancestors, but also close ancestors of the tufted puffin and rhinoceros auklet. Both these species only reside in the northern Pacific today. So what the hell are they doing on the East Coast? One possible answer is that the Panama Land Bridge had not closed yet. That wouldn't happen until about 3 million years ago. This allowed an easier flow of aquatic species from the east to the west coast. This allowed an easier flow of aquatic species from the east and west coast. More importantly, this shows that there was likely a lot of mixing between Pacific and Atlantic populations of auklets throughout the Miocene and Pliocene. One last thing about these fossils, they are part of a huge deposit of fossils that covers parts of Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina, and is called the Yorktown Formation because some of the first areas it was uh, found is in these exposed cliffs um, in Yorktown, Virginia, which is my hometown. Shout out Yorktown. And it's kind of crazy to think that there are all these puffins hanging out in North Carolina. What a difference a couple million years can make, right? However, this heyday for alkids was coming to an end. The climate was gradually cooling and glaciers in the northern hemisphere were advancing. The Atlantic puffin and the horned puffin, its closest relative, separated about 4.4 million years ago. I suspect a possible reason for this speciation is because as glaciers advanced across the North Sea of the Arctic, populations of the Pacific and Atlantic coast puffins were no longer able to come into contact, but that's just me theorizing. I didn't see it written anywhere. And also, you know, the Panama land bridge was starting to close, so that stopped them being able to um, swim from, you know, the east to the west coast and mix. At around 2.5 million years ago, a big blow to the alkids happened during the Pliocene-Pleistocene transition. This is the onset of the Ice Age, and a multitude of factors such as advancing ice sheets, changing ocean currents, caused marine animal populations to collapse. This also caused many of the alkids who, you know, were eating a lot of these sea critters to die off. There also were some other crazy marine predators that died off. Um, there used to be an Atlantic population of walruses that is now gone. There was a family of seagull-like birds called pelagornithids um, who had toothed bills. There was also a terrifying group of whales called the squalodons. Um, they were basically like killer whales, except they had these long snouts. Totally terrifying. Our puffins, however, though, made it through this extinction event. On the southern channel islands of California, fossils of a puffin dating to about 12,000 to 100,000 years ago have been found. It's a really rare find for birds. It's nearly a whole preserved skeleton. And even more amazing, there's a preserved egg that was also found. This bird appeared to have died from a cave-in in its burrow, which is a reason why it was so well preserved. Bad news for the bird, but good news for paleontologists, who after studying the bird, named it Dow's Puffin, after an assistant named Robert Dow that was like helping them with um, all this research. Dow's Puffin was smaller than modern-day puffins, but larger than the rhinoceros auklet, which remember is one of their closest relatives. This is because it was likely one of the earliest puffins to evolve, and its intermediate body size illustrates the divergence of auklets and puffins into two separate genuses. 
So the Dallas puffin is kind of like a transition species, showing us how the Fratercola puffin genus evolved from the other smaller-sized um, auk birds. As I discussed earlier, Atlantic puffins show pretty high fidelity to their colonies, and while juvenile puffins may venture out to find new colonies, they usually don't go too far. This has resulted in clusters of puffin populations and the formation of subspecies. Genome analysis of Atlantic puffins shows four main population clusters. There's a high Arctic population on the Norwegian island of Splitsbergen. There's a Canadian population, one associated with the Isle of May off the Scottish coast, and a, file, and a final hodgepodge population that includes the puffins of Iceland, Faroe Islands, and Norway. Um, of note, uh, the study didn't sample puffins from the U.S., Russia, France, Greenland, Ireland, or the U.K. Historically, um, there's three subspecies of Atlantic puffins listed, um, but this genome analysis kind of contradicts that three subspecies claim. It does agree with one of the subspecies listed, um, the so-called large-billed Atlantic puffin that inhabits Splitsbergen, and is notably larger um, than the more southerly puffins. So, Atlantic puffins seem to follow Bergman's rule. Remember, remember Bergman's rule? I feel like I haven't brought it up in a while. Um, uh, Bergman's rule states that animals in more northerly climates have larger body size to conserve more heat. So, that large-billed Atlantic puffin population um, helps demonstrate this, and seems to be its own subspecies. And then there's kind of like subspecies clusters um, throughout the rest of the Atlantic Ocean. Well, that kind of ends it for puffin evolution. Let's end with just a little bit of puffin folklore. The connection of puffins to clerical figures of the church seems to run pretty deep. I mean, you know, we talked about how the genus name Fratercola means basically little friar. While in Iceland, the puffin is called Lundi, its nickname is Thrafaster, which means dean, a term for an administrative priest in the Catholic Church. In Ireland, puffins were off limits for eating because it was believed that they were reincarnated souls of monks. In Cornish folklore in England, King Arthur was reincarnated as a puffin. But not all folklore about puffins is so complimentary. In the 1800s in Scotland, a stupid man would be called a Tammy Nori, a nickname for the puffin. And while I couldn't find a ton of, like, indigenous people's tales about um, puffins from, you know, North America, I did find that the Inuit people of Greenland would use puffin beaks to make rattles. All right, folks, thanks for listening. I hope you like hearing about the Atlantic puffin. Remember to subscribe, leave a review, send me your bird stories, your bird sounds. Let me know if you want some free Dirty Bird podcast stickers. Put them all over the place. Spread the Dirty Bird word. All right. Stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening.
stuck in the back and I like the New York Mets and my cowboy.